Um, hey, um, this morning, just really glad that you guys are here. It's, just, it's always so great uh, to be here. Every, every chance we get just to come together as like God's family. And I know that we're moving towards Easter and we're starting to see more people come back and people are getting their vaccines. And, uh, and boy, it's just exciting. It's just a great, great time. So glad that you guys are here. Uh, every time we get to dig into God's Word, um, it's just an awesome opportunity. And I love, we're in this book, uh, this book of Jonah, which is just one of my favorites. It's just a great book. So um, I'm just excited to be here um, with you guys this morning. So if you don't know me, if I don't know you, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem, and I uh, would, would love the opportunity uh, to meet you uh, after uh, church uh, as well. So I, I thought I'd start this morning um, with this story. So um, when I was a sophomore in college, I remember I was living in Colorado for the time. I was doing um, kind of a summer uh, experience with a, with a uh, college ministry. And so we were living in Colorado, and, um, and I needed to come back or go back home to Nebraska um, because that's where I'm originally from. And so I needed to go back there for a wedding. And so I rode with one of my buddies who was going to this wedding. We were driving back uh, together. And uh, in Colorado, like we were up in the mountains. And so the road out of Winter Park is this really, really windy and steep road. And, uh, and at that time, they happened to be doing construction kind of in segments all the way up. And so it's a long drive as it is. Uh, but uh, with the added construction, uh, it was just just painfully long. And so I remember we were in this car waiting, and then finally we got to go. And so they say, okay, great, you're, you're, you're you know, because you, you, there's only one way, right? So like a whole line of cars come, and then they let you go. And so we went down uh, the mountain, and we started down this mountain, and we had been sitting there for so long, we were so bored. Uh, it was just this painful, painful moment. And, uh, and so we saw these cones, you know, in the road. And I said, you know what would be really funny is if you just, just wove back and forth around all of the cones. And I remember, I was in college, okay, so I wouldn't say this now. Um, and he looked at me, he gave me this look, and I was like, I was, I was kidding. Uh, and he looked at me with this, I accept. <laughs> type of face. And so he just, he starts going around all of the cones, in and out, weaving in and out. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is terrifying. Like what's going to happen? And we get to the end and this lady, this construction lady, um, she has this sign, right? The stop sign. And, and she treated it like Thor's hammer. Okay. So like she comes, like she, she looks at her car or her line and she says, don't you move. And she puts her whole body in front of our lane and takes this sign like Moses's staff and goes and like throws the stop sign down and so he like stops and she comes and just just braids us and then the she calls over like the the manager and like the construction manager whoever this person was and they come over and they they roll down the window and I just remember they just bent over and they said what in the world did you do that for and I just remember, I, I mean, I couldn't even take my face off of the floor. Like, I was just, like, staring, right? And I just, out of the corner of my eye, I see my buddy's head hang. And he goes, because I'm stupid. Just, just total resignation. Like, you just, like, I, I got nothing. I, got, I have nothing for you. This is all that I know. Like, I'm just, I just, you know, I, I'm dumb. I just, it was a stupid, stupid thing. And that's, if you remember, that's actually where our story ended last week. Because the sailors, as they confront Jonah in this, is the, like they're on this ship, right? And they confront him and they ask him this question, what did you do? Like, why did you do this? 
Like, it's just this absolutely bizarre moment that unfolds. And they look at Jonah and they're like, man, like, why in the world did you do that? What did you do this for? And so we, we know that Jonah, like, you would picture Jonah with this, this look of resignation, and yet that's not really it. He, he doesn't really acknowledge or own his sin. In fact, when they challenge his identity and they really say, who are you? What do you do? Where, where do you come from? Uh, all these things, Jonah's response is, is not like, I am God's chosen um, like people like or person. I'm not a prophet. I, it has nothing to do with my faith. It has nothing to do with the fact that like, I'm a transformed person. Like, his first response is, I am a Hebrew. And so we find that his identity is so shallow. In fact, he replaces God's given identity for him with this nationalistic identity. That I, I'm, I'm more concerned, he says, with my, the state of my nation and the freedom that I, that I get to um, participate in as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. I'm more concerned with that than I am with anything else. And so we find this, this identity of Jonah is incredibly and challenged. And so what we're actually going to find today in our story in these next few verses is that while Jonah has this very shallow view of his own identity, he actually has an, a, the similar projection or a shallow identity for the person and the character of Yahweh. He really projects it back onto, onto Yahweh. But what we're going to find is that every, at every space in this story, and we'll kind of retrace through it, we're going to find that the greatness of God or the magnitude of God continues to enter into the story in incredibly powerful ways. And ultimately, it's going to point us to the gospel. It's going to be this really rich, gospel-centric story where we're going to see kind of the whole thing really tied together. So... If you've got your Bibles, uh, open up to uh, the book of Jonah. We're still in chapter one. We actually finish up chapter one. Uh, and by the way, just so you know, um, next week is um, uh, Palm Sunday. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break from Jonah for a couple of weeks. And we're going to enter into the Easter season together. So we're going to kind of put Jonah on hold um, next week. But we're going to finish up chapter one this morning. And here's where we start in verse 11. Okay, we ready? Here we go. It says, Then they said to him, um, what shall we do to you? Okay, so just as a reminder, right? Remember our last story, this, these last verses just before in verse, um, in verse 10, they say, what did you do? Like, like why, why have you done this? What is this that you have done? And yet here, the, the, the question changes. It reverses. And it's, it's not what did you do. It actually is, is what shall we do? And so we already begin to, to catch a whiff, really, um, this, this aroma of the gospel. Because they, they look at Jonah, and they, it's really this. This is your problem. This is, this is everything, all this that is happening is really your problem, but there's this shift in ownership. Even though this is your problem, what are we going to do about it? Do you, do you see the switch? Right? What are we going to do to do? What do we have to do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? Because right, the sea grew more and more tempestuous, which is a fun word. It's just a, it's just a neat, fun word to say, right? So like, the storm just continues to get worse uh, and worse. And even though they know that this is Jonah's problem, there is this peace inside of them that understands 
how, uh, how the divine nature, even though they are polytheistic in their background, they, they know that how we, how we deal with gods is that there has to be some level of appeasement, right? There has to be a level of atonement. And really, so they're, they're saying this question, like, how do we make this right? How do we take something that's broken and messed up and, and totally debunked, and how do we make this actually right? What do we do about it, right? What level of atonement needs to happen, right? And so the question is, though, even though they understand this, does Jonah actually understand this? Does Jonah understand what needs to happen? So you look in verse 12, here's what it says. And it said, he, or so Jonah, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Okay, so, so he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. So there's some level of acknowledgement here. But this is interesting to me because there's, there's kind of two different um, interpretations that we can kind of wrestle with and we look at this. Um, and the first one is that this, is, is does Jonah actually have a change of heart? Is Jonah beginning to understand that I have a role to play and, and this is a form of repentance? So he, when he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, is it his way of saying, okay, like I, I get it, I, I made um, a dum-dum and I'm, I'm willing to, you know, kind of make atonement, right? Like that's just kind of the thing. Is that, is that the case? Does he, does he have a change of heart? Well, some people actually think that it's actually the opposite. It's not a change of heart. Um, some people would say that this is actually just another way of Jonah running. Because what's the surest way for Jonah to get out of his call to Nineveh? It was to die. And so some people would say, well, this is just his way of saying, like, I, I, I kind of give lip service to the fact that there's something wrong here, but really, I just want another way out. And so the question is, like, well, which is real? And we, and we don't know. We don't actually know which, uh, which is true. And it's, it's interesting to me because it's almost as if the author leaves this ambiguous for a reason. He doesn't necessarily want us to know. He's, he's exploring what some might say would be like the psychology of sin. Because if, if we're to be totally honest, right, sometimes in life our emotional disposition right, uh, is messy at best. And we don't actually know. Like, we can't think straight in these moments. Like, what happens here and what happens here and what happens in my hands just feel totally disconnected. And so sometimes in life we go, like, I feel like I'm repenting, but maybe I'm actually running. Has anybody ever felt that? Or maybe it's the reverse, and, you, and maybe there's this guilt, and you're, you're like, man, well, I feel like I'm running, but maybe I'm actually repenting, and there's this false guilt. Right? So we don't actually know what the motives are here for Jonah. But here is what we do know. What we do know is that Jonah says, hurl me into the ocean. Okay, so when Jonah says, hurl me into the ocean, if you remember back earlier in the story, when, when this, this massive storm is happening and the sailors take the cargo, and what do they do? They hurl it. They hurl it into the sea. And so here, Jonah, it's, it's almost as if it seems that the author is giving us this key to say that when Jonah says, hurl me into the ocean, he has this really low view of himself. Just treat me like the cargo. 
Just toss me overboard. Just like all of that stuff that you tried to get rid of, just take it and get rid of it. And just throw me over. Just like in the same way you did with the cargo, right? Like it's the same thing with me. And so just really kind of throw me over. We also know that, that death is not outside the realm of possibility for Jonah. Because if you just fast forward into chapter 4, what we'll actually find is that Jonah even complains to God yet again. And he says, like, like death is on the table for me, he says. Like, this is, he goes, I would just rather die. And so that's also a very viable possibility in this text. And yet, there's also this biblical story piece that if we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, we remember, right, that the man and woman are created in the image of God. Well, what is the pattern that God himself has done over the course of history, most pointedly in Jesus Christ? He says, I will what? I will sacrifice myself for you. And so in, in some sense, there's also this positive piece that's, that Jonah's got to be wrestling with. Like he knows that there is a need for sacrifice. There has to be some level of atonement. And he knows that being created in God's image and, and having this prolific past as a prophet, that some level of sacrifice is actually very important. And yet he just wants himself to be thrown overboard into the water. And so we, we begin to see, like, there's this massive tension that's got to be going on in Jonah's head and his heart. There's this disconnect back and forth over and over uh, and over. And I almost wonder if Jonah has this shallow view of forgiveness, because it's in this space, if he is caught between these two things of running and repenting, and his motives are unclear, if he's caught in this space, it's almost as if he goes, gosh, I know that I've done something wrong, and yet I can't really escape it because I don't think God will really forgive me. And so really the best way out for everyone is just for me to go. It's just for me to die. It's just for me to, to put myself in, and, and this is it's like everybody wins. This is an everybody type of wins scenario, but it's a shallow view. If that's the case, it's a shallow view of God's identity, of who Yahweh is, because Yahweh, throughout this story, and he will continue, right, to show up in his greatness and to, to rescue and resolve these things when we as humans just can't do it, right? Okay, so here's what happens, though. This story continues. We look at verse uh, 13. It says, uh, this is of the men, right? The men who are in the boat. Verse 13, it says, uh, nevertheless, like nevertheless, meaning like besides, besides the point, like everything that he just said, in spite of everything that he has just said, nevertheless, what do these men do? It does, they don't just like immediately throw him in like overboard. Like they, it says that they actually rode hard to get back to dry Land, But they couldn't, they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous uh, against them. So, I mean, look at the character of these men. Look, at the, look what they, they do, right? They don't throw him overboard. They actually put their oars in and they try harder and try harder and try harder, which really is the contrast to Jonah early, earlier in the story. Right? Because Jonah has fled. Jonah has no concern for the life of the people on this boat. He has no concern. By the way, who's the one person in this story who has yet to pick up an oar? Jonah. He just doesn't do it. 
He doesn't pick up an oar, ever. And yet these men, the character of these men, is, and this is why it's so upside down, this is such a backward story, is that they care more and they dig their oars into the water. So the word, um, the word uh, where is it, uh, road hard in Hebrew, um, literally means this. It means to dig our oars uh, into the water. And so when I think about the idea of digging, I picture a shovel. Okay, so picture a shovel in your mind, and you go out in your backyard. And if you start digging with a shovel, right, what happens? The hole gets bigger. It gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. And so the reality is that the more I dig, the harder it actually is to get out. And that's the same thing that's happening in this storm, right? The more that they dig, the harder they row, like the, the less they can actually do uh, about it. It just, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And so what happens then is we get to verse 14, and this is, this is so important. Like, like what happens is that they're really, they're out of options. They, they, have no, they have nothing else that they can do. And so it says in verse 14, it says, therefore, right, therefore they called out to the Lord. And remember, all capitals means that this is God's personal name, Yahweh. They called out to Yahweh. So if we pause for a second, if you remember back in the earlier story, who were they calling out to earlier in the story? They were calling out to other gods, like all of the polytheistic gods. Who are they calling out to now? They're calling out to Yahweh. So something has changed in the hearts of these men, right? They're calling out to Yahweh, and they say, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has please you. The idea of innocent blood just strikes me as humorous, because is Jonah innocent? He's so far from innocent, and yet this is the way they treat him. Don't, don't hold us accountable. Don't hold us accountable for, for what we have to do, because the reality is, right, we have no other options. We don't want to perish. We don't want him to perish. We don't want us to perish. And yet we know Jonah is not at all innocent. And so, but these, these sailors very rightly understand that there is a level of accountability here. When you look at Yahweh, especially Yahweh, the creator God, in contrast to all of the polytheistic gods, it's as if the sailors in this moment say, like, Yahweh, we don't know exactly how you work. But there has to be some level of atonement. There has to be some type of debt that is paid in this moment, in this environment, to take care of this, to appease you. And they understand that, and they know that far better than Jonah, right? And it's so interesting that, that they, when they say, we have no other option, just remember that, that these people have more concern for the life of the people on the boat. And yet Jonah got on this boat knowing that he was leaving and has zero concern. Zero concern for the people on this boat, right? That's the contrast. And so when you have no other options, right, the more you dig your oars in, when you have no other options, what do you do? Verse 15, it says, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Can you, wait, just time out, just pause. Can you imagine this scenario? You are a professional sailor who has endured the worst of storms other than this one. And this is by far the greatest, most difficult, most life-threatening storm that they have ever faced. 
And yet by throwing Jonah into the water, the storm just... I mean, can can you imagine? As you begin to put your mind and your heart into, really, into the heart of these guys who are on the boat, right? This, This is absolutely interesting moment. And then the sea ceases its raging. Now, here's what I love about here's what I love about the original language in this is that that word raging, actually in the Hebrew, is actually connected to another word that means without humor or the loss of humor. And it's as if, and I don't know if this is true, but, I, but I, when I read this and I look at this, it's almost as if to me the author is helping us flip a switch. Because up to this point, like if you're reading this, you're like, you're laughing, you're rolling, you're going, man, this is bizarre, this is so crazy. And all of a sudden, it's as if the author says, like, let's, let's, let's flip the switch for a moment and let's take humor and then comedy and let's pause. Because I want you, as the author says, I want you to understand the significance and the seriousness of what's about to happen in this moment. We take the humor out and we put the seriousness in. And here's what it says in verse 16, right? The author, it's like he's pointing us, pointing us to verse, excuse me, uh, to verse 16, yeah. It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The men feared the Lord, right? So there's this, the the comedy switch is down, the seriousness switch is up. And there's that fear. The word, if we looked last week, um, Jonah said, I fear, right? I fear Yahweh. And we go, no, you don't. You don't fear Yahweh. Everything about your life says the opposite, and then you look at these men, and in this moment, and what do they do? It says that they fear, they Yahweh, Yahweh. And you go, oh, okay. So the, this upside-down story, that's what it means to fear Yahweh. We get it. We begin to get it as readers, what it really actually means to fear Yahweh. And so what do they do? They, they make vows to Yahweh. And, and the way that they do that is to make a sacrifice, so let me ask you a question. Um, if you are on the middle of a boat and you want to make a sacrifice, uh, do you build an altar <laughs> right in the middle of your boat? Do you do this? Last I checked, fire and wood don't go together. <laughs> right? So you probably wouldn't. And so they would have had to, actually, in that moment, they would have had to leave and go back to land, probably to a Yahwistic temple, a, a Yahweh temple, maybe even to Jerusalem itself. And we also we begin to we connect bigger dots here because Jonah, when he got on that ship and he went towards Tarshish, what is he doing? He's rejecting the temple. He's giving up that lifestyle. He's going away from the atonement. He's going away from sacrifices. He's going away from forgiveness. He's going all of that. He's leaving all of that behind. And yet in the story, what probably would have had to happen is that these sailors, in order to make a vow, they would have had to make a sacrifice, and they would have had to go to a Yahweh temple, maybe even Jerusalem itself. It's this total reversal. That they're the ones who really get it in the story. Now, it's possible that when they, um, when they become what we would call maybe Yahwists or, or Yahweh worshipers, it's possible that they're just taking that, that idea and they're throwing it into their, their polytheistic 
uh, attitude, their, their mindset. Like, we'll just we'll worship Yahweh among all of the gods. And that's possible. But it's also possible that this is a full and true conversion where they give up on everything that their life has taught them, everything about it, everything that their family, well, they go home. Can you imagine this conversation? Sailor comes home. Hey, honey, you're not going to believe what happened. By the way, uh, we worship Yahweh now, and uh, everything that your family taught you, everything that my family taught you, it's all done. It's all gone. It's all out the window. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's a total reversal for these, these people. And, there, and there's, again, there's irony in this story, right? Because Jonah was actually fleeing to what? To avoid Gentiles or pagans coming to know Christ. And what happens is that Yahweh, the greatness of God, intervenes. And what happens? <laughs> people come to know Jesus. They come to know Yahweh, which is this crazy, crazy story that teaches us just really ultimately about the sovereignty of God. And it's this upside down story, just over and over and over, this story is upside down. And the teaching is, is that for us as readers and as listeners to the author, to the Holy Spirit, to Yahweh himself, we go, gosh, the way that this is meant to be is to be right side up. That's the point of the story in the midst of the comedy, in the midst of all of that. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to go to... Um, the board here just for a second, and hopefully this comes up. I think we're still having some, some issues here. So uh, if you remember this story uh, starts, what we're going to do is we're actually, the, we're going to look at kind of the gospel story through Jonah. Okay, this is going to be fun. I, well, at least I hope you think that it's fun. I think that it's fun, okay? The story starts with the great city, and what we're going to do is we're going to trace the word great through this story. And if you remember, like when we first started, we drew this box as like, what if this was the, you know, like a, a zoomed in magnified version, uh, like Google Maps, except like way ancient uh, Near Eastern history. Uh, we zoom in and we see this city that's full of people. And um, we know in chapter four that, that God, that Yahweh says that this city is filled with 120,000 people who don't know uh, their right hand from their left. And that doesn't mean that these people aren't smart, right? It's not like they go into the room and they're like, hey, which ones are right? Oh, I don't know, you know? That's not what's happening. It really means it's this simplistic way of saying they have no clue who Yahweh is. And when you look at it from that perspective, it's this simple and as basic as not knowing your right hand from your left. Do you begin to feel that and to sense the tension, right? And so the story starts with that great city. The word in Hebrew is the word gadol, and that's what we're going to trace, gadol, uh, that great or that gadol city. And we find that Jonah, instead of coming up here, right, instead of going here, he actually comes down to this city called Joppa, and he has every intention to come over to the southern tip of Spain to this town or this city called Tarshish, which is really the, the edge of the known world, right? Beyond that is just the ocean. Again, the Americas, a long time before those are discovered, okay? So Jonah gets on this ship, and he starts this journey, and I erased this line because I wanted to redraw my dove, okay, um, because it looked like a rat with wings. So I'm going to try and do this, right? Hey. 
<laughs> That's way better. It's the simple things in life. We remember that the, the, the Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove, right? Son of faithfulness. And so we know that, that again, the irony, the comic here is that, that the son of faithfulness is fleeing um, over to Tarshish, right? That's his, whole, that's his whole mentality. That's his whole thing. But in the midst of that, here's what happens. is the greatness of God, the gadol of God actually shows up. And it says that he, God hurled a great wind. And so I'm going to use these to kind of just show the wind. Just this over, over every, every angle, right? And, and it's this great wind. And in fact, there's this great tempest. And so we're going to kind of throw those white, foamy waves under this. So the greatness of God is showing up. Starts with a great city. Uh, Jonah disobeys he, disobeys. he begins to flee. The great the wind, which really stands for the wrath of God. So this is the plan. God says, like Yahweh says, I want salvation to come to these people up here. Right? And Jonah flees. And so then the wrath of God enters into this story and throws this whole thing into chaos. Right? That's what, that's what happens. And then uh, you have, uh, obviously, the sailors. And then they, they hurl cargo in. And then they hurl him in. And we'll look at that in a second. Uh, but there's this, everything we try really against the wrath of God and nothing is working until until Jonah. And so we have this serious moment, right, where you have the sailors who are on board the ship with Jonah, son of faithfulness, and when they throw him in, this whole thing ends. And there's this serious moment where uh, the wrath of God dissipates and all of this stuff ceases. And so there's this serious moment that the author basically is tracing the greatness of God, the great city. This is the plan. The great wind, the great tempest, right? All these things are coming up against it. And so there's this serious moment. And in the midst of that, the sailors, they what? They convert. They yare God. They, they shift and move from polytheism, and they actually become Yahweh people. And so there's this very serious moment, actually, in the midst of this comic story. But then what happens, and this is funny, is that the author flips the, comedia, uh, the comic switch back on, doesn't he? And what happens? <laughs> that's, a, that's a giant fish. And what does it look like? It looks like a massive children's goldfish, doesn't it? Kind of. And if you remember, when we started this whole story, uh, we, we said that we, we need, as adults, to actually move away from the childlike nature of the story. Because when we think about Jonah, all we do is we think of the great fish. And yeah, it's just this one piece. And so I draw this there, just kind of, you know, this is the comedy switch coming back on, that there's this massive, giant fish that, that Jonah, um, that God actually appoints. And this is the final straw. So if you look at this verse, um, right here, this final straw, right? It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, right? So like the comedy switch goes back on. You're like, good grief. Okay, but there was this, we can't miss, this, this really intense moment where the sailors trust in Yahweh. And all of a sudden, though, we're back to comedy, and this massive fish swallows up Jonah, 
and then he's in the belly of the fish three days uh, and three nights. And so, by the way, um, when, um, when the sailors actually fear, I'm going to come back up here just for a second. When uh, we're tracing the greatness of God, the Gadol, great city, great wind, great tempest, uh, great fish, is actually that same word. So we're looking at all of the ways that God intercedes. But the serious piece in this is that in, when I use the, the um, translation ESV, it says that the men feared God exceedingly. The word exceedingly in Hebrew is the same word for great. Gadol. So God's story, over and over, he enters in the greatness of God over and over and over. And what happens is that there's this great conversion, this great fear, this exceeding fear of these sailors. And again, we see the upside-down nature of this story. And this is strange, right? Because when we look at this, when we look at this fish, we go, is this, is this the judgment of God? Is that the point of this? Like, God's like, I'm going to teach you another lesson. This is not actually an act of judgment. This is an act of rescue, because meanwhile, if you remember, right, so the men, like, they throw Joan overboard, the sea ceases a traging, they leave the area, and they go back to land, and meanwhile, Jonah is like, doggy paddling. He's just trying to stay alive. He's just trying to stay afloat. And so God appoints this great fish, and it sends, and it swallows, and really, it's this act of grace as God intervenes into the story, right? This is this act of grace. And so here's what's so great about who Yahweh is, is that for us, when we are running, and remember with the first week we said, when we are running, we are either at best rebelling or at worst rejecting. And so wherever we're at on that scale, right, we're still running, and yet what, what does God do? Whether I'm rebelling or rejecting, God rescues. That's Yahweh. That's the God that we worship. That's the God, creator God, that we actually worship, which is just absolutely incredible. So I thought, how can I, how can I illustrate this? Um, how many of you guys grew up uh, with Frosted Flakes? Frosted Flakes are so good, right? It's like somebody, it's like somebody was just eating regular cornflakes and all of a sudden realized that they're bad, um, and they said, you know what would make regular cornflakes good? A cup of sugar. <laughs> Not a cup of salt. A cup of sugar. Um, and so what they do is they just pour, pour, pour all of this sugar onto it. And I just like, as I, as I, I don't eat Frosted Flakes anymore, but because I needed them for this, I tried eating some the other day. And I tell you what, they are good. Right? There's so much, there's so much sugar on this thing. And so as, as tasty as it is, do you know what the problem is with Frosted Flakes? You're like, well, obviously it's sugar. Yes, but, but why? Because when I eat a bowl of Frosted Flakes, well, A, one bowl never satisfy me. You just have to keep adding, right? And that's just the reality. Like, they're just so thin. But the reality is that there's so much sugar on these things is that for a moment, I'm like, man, this is crazy good. And I have energy and I'm ready to go. But then two hours later, I sugar crash. Hardcore. You know? And we would, we would look at these, and remember Tony the Tiger's, like, his line is what? They're great. They're great. That's how he talks about it. And yet what he doesn't say is, they're so good. Two hours later, you dive into a sugar coma. They're so good. 
They're great. And I think about the greatness of God in this story. I ask myself this question, have we lost the greatness of God in our stories? Because when we think about this, this is super temporary. And when we think about what happened in the story, it's super temporary. So if you're just, just play along with me here for a second. Um, when, uh, when God hurls, God hurls a great wind at the people, that's, that's his judgment, right? That's his wrath coming in. He hurls a great wind. And so what do the sailors do? They hurl, notice the word hurl, they're tracking this. They hurl in cargo, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't stop the storm. The storm doesn't cease raging. It just keeps going and keeps going. And in fact, it gets, keeps getting worse. The more we hurl at God, right, the more worse it gets. And then what happens is that they hurl, same word, they hurl Jonah and the sea ceases its raging. So between the two things, cargo or a person, which one worked? A person. And so what does it do? It points us to the need for a human atonement, a human substitute for our sin. It points us ultimately to Jesus, right? Check this out. Um, the EFCA uh, talks about it this way. They say, we believe, this is one of our, our statements of faith about the, the works of Jesus, okay? Um, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute, these are really key words, representative, because Jonah was a representative for all of Israel. Adam was a representative for all of mankind. In the same way, Jesus was a representative for all of humanity, except Jesus was a different type of substitute, right? He shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. And so whenever I think about this, I think about Eden's toy at home where she has those stars and squares and circles, and you kind of keep trying to mash them in, and yet it's kind of like we're throwing cargo at God to solve a problem that cargo won't fix. What we need is a substitute, and Jonah acted as a temporary substitute, but Jesus acts as a permanent substitute permanent substitute. Check this out in, um, in the sign of Jonah, right? Okay, so you go all the way to Matthew chapter 12, uh, and we look at this as Jesus. He says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, next verse says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? We see the parallel. Jesus takes the sign of Jonah and the story of Jonah, and he turns it in to his own use. And here's this last verse. This is so important. He says, the men of Nineveh, these people up here, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, that's chapter 4, spoiler alert, and behold, something, what's that word? Greater. Not great, but something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. That's the sign of Jonah. Guys, we are heading into Easter. And I want to finish uh, with this. We're heading into Easter, and we need to be thinking about these things, and sometimes I find that in church, 
is that we like to take discipleship um, and evangelism, and we like to put them in two separate boxes. Guys, I'm not an evangelist. I'm really not. That's, just, that's not who I am. But I understand that when I look at this and I look at the story, I think about COVID, I think about Easter and all the things that are happening, and I go, gosh, like God is doing something, and we need to be concerned about these things because God is concerned about these things. We don't want to be like Jonah. We want to be like Jesus. And so instead of separating these boxes, what if we actually combined the two and evangelism was actually a subset of discipleship? Because that's the way that Jesus taught it. He doesn't teach it like this. He says that there's discipleship and then evangelism is a part of that. And I go, gosh, like as a, as a group of people, and I'm not just talking about Salem, I'm talking about the whole Big C Church. We have to learn to take baby steps and to move in this direction where we begin to see the world in the way that God sees the world. I want to invite the worship team up and we're going to sing a song to wrap up our time. But again, I just want to, I want to ask, a few, ask a few questions. And just so you guys know, as we move into next week, uh, Palm Sunday. We're going to do something a little bit unique and, and different. We're actually going to walk through the Seder meal, the Passover meal. Uh, and you won't take communion next week because that'll be on Good Friday. Um, but we'll walk through and we'll begin to see all of the different elements and why they're so significant in the way that Jesus would have celebrated uh, the Passover meal. So here's these last questions for us as we, as we wrap up our times. We snap the line. First question is this. Nope, sorry. Other way. There we go. Um, what, what, apparently, I typed these, that's on me, what am I hurling uh, at Yahweh, uh, what am I hurling at Yahweh instead of trusting in Jesus' substitution? Boy, just take, just take a moment and just process through that, right? What have I been throwing at God? Last one, how might uh, the greatness of Jesus transform me, right? There's a work that, that needs to happen in my walk with Jesus. And so that greatness piece of Jesus, right? The, he's greater. The sign of Jonah is greater than those other signs. And this last one is what if, this is kind of a vision question. Like uh, together as we leave, what if we saw the greatness of Jesus transform the lives of people in our community, which is the evangelism piece. And again, they're not separate. They're actually tied together. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this morning we, we just end our time. We want to finish with some worship and help us to remember, even as we watched the video on mission earlier, this mission to El Chonco. Help us to remember that, that, that our lifestyles and our mission uh, is actually a form of worship. That in all things that we do, we do for the glory of God. And so it really is an act of worship for us to celebrate not only our relationship with El Chonco, um, but how do we live that out here? There's this life as worship mentality. And so, Lord, would you enter in this morning, and as we finish with a song, would the Spirit compel us, give us excitement? Um, and, and for those of us who are like me, who maybe aren't gifted evangelists, it's not really our nature or who we are, it's not our spiritual gift, would you give us excitement to see the greatness of Jesus enter into the world and to enter into us, and at the same time that we would be shaped together? Lord, you are so good. You are so great. And thank you for intervening at every level 
in, in the midst of our running, our rebellion, our rejecting, you rescue us. And so, Lord, would we constantly point ourselves and point others to Jesus. And so give us those, those opportunities. Lord, this morning we celebrate you with all of our love. In your name we pray. Amen.